This is Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment. Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Monday, August 21st, 2006. I'm Tyson Acker at IATP in Minneapolis. On this edition, we visit the Minnesota State Fair to learn about the new Eco Experience Building. Richard Levins talks about the impact of globalization on the American middle class. But first, we talk with Jim Riddle about the battle over organic milk standards. Controversy has erupted in the milk world over how much time cows must have access to open pasture to qualify as organic. Some critics have charged that industrial organic operations give their cows very little access to pasture, undermining the integrity of organic standards. Earlier this month in Minneapolis, representatives from two of the nation's largest organic dairy companies, Horizon Dairy and Organic Valley, participated in a meeting to discuss exactly what is organic dairy. Also participating was Jim Riddle, Organic Outreach Coordinator at the University of Minnesota and former chair of the National Organic Standards Board. We talked with Jim to learn more about this controversy. You know, consumers expect that when, uh, you know, milk and dairy products are labeled organic, that those animals had freedom of movement and a lot of their feed value came from grazing. That's the natural behavior of a cow is to graze. And there are some uh, uh, operations, like I said, where the animals are essentially locked up in confinement with absolutely no pasture for at least 10 months of the year. They may get limited grazing during the two months of the year where they're not producing milk because every cow in their life cycle produces milk for 10 months and then they're what's called dried off where they're no longer producing and then they have a calf and then they come into milk again and so during that entire 10-month lactation period they're not being being, uh, given pasture at all by some of these operations. So it's questionable whether that meets the standards. I don't think it even meets the existing standards, but uh, some of these dairies have managed to get certified. And even though there have been uh, complaints uh, filed with USDA, there's been no enforcement action against these companies or the certifiers who are approving their practices. Under the organic regulations, uh, all livestock, organic livestock must be given access to the outdoors when it's seasonally appropriate and you know it won't endanger the health and safety of the animals. But there are uh, especially poultry operations which are not providing any meaningful access to the outdoors. And you know they're holding up the fear of bird flu as one reason they're keeping the birds indoors to protect their, you know, health and safety. And so there's kind of an unlevel playing field because a lot of organic poultry producers are putting their birds on pasture, or they do give them meaningful outdoor access. But yeah, I, I think it's really important for people to keep in mind, you know, even though there is this controversy on the pasture and some other controversies I mentioned, that by far our organic livestock standards in the U.S. are still the strongest in the world. Jim Riddle 
is the Organic Outreach Coordinator at the University of Minnesota. More information about organic standards can be found at the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movements website at ifoam.org. In the United States, farmers, workers, and the middle class are all facing stagnant wages, increased costs of living, and massive debt. What has changed in the U.S. economy? What is the role of globalization in these changes? And how can the middle class shift the power in the marketplace in their favor? To find out, we sat down with Dr. Richard Levins, a senior fellow at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, professor emeritus in economics from the University of Minnesota, and author of a new book, Middle Class, Union Made. Globalization is having a terrible effect on the middle class. There's somehow a philosophy out there that trading good jobs for cheap toasters is a good idea. That's a terrible idea. The reason is because the middle class is where the buying power is. As you erode the jobs, you erode the buying power of the economy. Sooner or later, there's not people left to buy this stuff. The very wealthy, those who benefit from globalization, do not spend all of their money on consumer goods by a long shot. The middle class in general does. This is a good time to talk about those subjects because it's, I believe it's the 25th anniversary of President Reagan busting the uh, union for the air traffic controllers, PATCO. It was also, and it's not a coincidence, that was a time when trickle-down economics was introduced. So you had a combination of declining unions and of government policies that more and more favored the rich. And in a nutshell, here's what happened. I just recently looked it up. When PATCO was busted, the personal savings rate in the United States was 10.9%. Today, that personal savings rate has been negative for the past 18 months. That's a tremendous change. The middle class has substituted borrowing for savings. That can only go on for so long. What should we be doing to try to reverse these trends? From a government perspective, clearly we're going to need to at least go in two directions. One is to redirect tax policies in ways that do not deliberately build a class of super wealthy people at everyone else's expenses. The second thing is we're going to need government policies that specifically encourage rather than discourage activities of labor unions. But as I said before, that's only going to be half the story. The other half is we're going to have to have those labor unions taking an active role in directing the economic activity of the country so that the economic activity builds and maintains the middle class as opposed to uh, a rich and poor type economy that in general don't grow very well. More information about Dr. Richard Levin's new book, Middle Class Union Made, is available at iatp.org. Each year, the Minnesota State Fair sees over 1.6 million people come through its gates. And though that number might be slightly inflated due to some of us going several times a year, there's no denying that for the week before Labor Day, the fairgrounds are a busy place. And this year, if you could make it past all the corn dogs, animal barns, and midway rides, you'd see that the new Eco Experience Building is no exception. A project of the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency the Eco Experience brought together groups working on energy, 
building design, hybrid cars, local food, recycling, and more under one roof to present a complete picture of sustainable living. Finding the building was easy thanks to the 123-foot wind turbine blade planted in the front yard. Curving majestically into the sky, this six-ton piece of functional art is held in place by a foundation as complex as those which hold giant wind generators themselves and took the combined efforts of 25 companies to install. Intrigued by this showy centerpiece, I walked inside the eco-building and wandered back to the wind section to talk with Windustry's Brian Antonich. Windustry is an organization that focuses on community-owned wind projects or keeping energy dollars local. So like, you know, having like farmers owning wind projects or municipal utilities or public schools. Um, there's some colleges that own wind projects as well. And it's proven to be a significant source of revenue for farmers and local entities. So it's good for rural economies. The building looks pretty busy here. Have you been getting a good stream of people that are interested in this? Uh, we've, we've been getting tons of people coming through here. This is probably one of the best outreach events that we've ever done. Like, we've intera interacted with more people here than I think any other event that we've ever done before. And it's really great. People are really excited about the environment, um, especially in terms of energy issues right now with, you know, how high gas prices are. Um, electricity rates are, are going up quite a bit these days, and so people are concerned about that. And um, global warming is in the front of everybody's mind right now. And uh, so they, they want to do their part. They're good Minnesotans, and they're, they're just trying to, to do what they can to protect the environment and also protect their pocketbooks. And um, in some cases, this is something that can really help people out. Probably the most popular part of our exhibit, at least the inside portion of it, are the two small wind turbines that we have. Um, we have a one kilowatt Berge wind turbine, which will generate a portion of the electricity needs for an average single family home. And then we also have uh, the Skystream, which is a southwest wind power uh, wind turbine. It's going to be, they're going to start selling that in October. It's a brand new model that's out on the market and people are really excited about it. Everybody wants to know what they themselves can do in terms of the environment. And some people can put up small wind turbines if they've got enough wind and if they've got enough money to do it. So just highlighting some options that everyday people can utilize to help minimize their impact on the environment. Brian Antonich is Windustry's small wind program analyst. More information on commercial and small-scale wind projects can be found on Windustry's website at windustry.org. Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. Our editor is Matthew Foster. Today's music was Tall Fiddler by Dale, I've Got a Secret by Robin Stein, and Divided Beliefs by Tyson Emanuel. I'm Tyson Acker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>